welcome to episode 35 of the Tech Done Right podcast, TableXI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. TableXI is offering training for developer and product teams. Topics include testing, improving legacy JavaScript, career development, and agile team processes. For more information, email us at workshops at tablexi.com. We also have a free email course and tools on improving your company's career growth and goals strategy. You can find that at stickynote.game. My book Rails 5 Test Prescriptions is now shipping. The book is up to date with the latest Rails, RSpec, and mini test features and has some great non-dogmatic content on how to get value from testing your Rails applications. You can buy the book at pragprog.com or wherever fine technical books are sold. Today on the show, I'm talking to Zach Pausman. Zach is the principal at Helpfully, a unique consultancy that uh, Zach will explain more about in a moment. Zach thinks a lot about artificial intelligence and how it might impact the future of development and technology design. So we'll talk about that. And of course, it's impossible to talk about AI these days without talking about the ethics of AI projects and how AI might affect the larger society. So we'll go a few rounds talking about possibilities for that as well. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. And here I am with Zach. Zach, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, this is Zach Pausman. Really good to be here today. I run Helpfully. We're a consulting company based in Atlanta, Georgia. We have a slightly different model than other teams where we actually get to take a client engagement and then staff exactly the right team to that. So that's like a subject matter experts, the right technical expertise, and the right design teams. So every one of our client engagements looks a little bit different. We also get to focus... I think uh, about 50% of our work is in the kind of two to five year time horizon. So ideas, technologies, new consumer behaviors that are a little bit farther out on the horizon, just over that horizon point. So it's sometimes hard for clients to sort of take advantage of them from a what I might describe as a profitability or ROI perspective right away, but certainly want to be prepared, want to be ready for uh, for those new emerging technologies and new emerging trends. Cool. That sounds really neat. We are here to talk about AI and the future of work, and in particular, design work and to some extent, development work. Where do you want to get us started? I think it might be fun just for us to go back and forth a little bit and talk a little bit about, yeah, what is AI? I mean, AI means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Uh, so maybe, uh, maybe I'll just give a quick, a really quick intro. Artificial intelligence to me and the, the way that I think about it from a historical perspective is really exactly what... Alan Turing said it was. It is this ability for computers to act in ways that are unmistakable or almost unmistakable from human beings. So that's like a 70-year-old definition at this point. But I think it's one that's really interesting because it's very behavioral, right? It's not about some philosophical thing. It's, it's, it's what computers actually can do in our lives. So there's, I, I did a little bit of AI work when I was a grad student many years ago. And, and there's kind of a there's a history here where the original AI researchers targeted problems that were hard for people, so chess and things like that. And they were able to discover pretty quickly that you could solve chess. You could have chess programs that played chess better than humans without having anything that you would describe as intelligent or even really human-like. And after that, AI sort of went after things that are really easy for people, like facial recognition and recognition of letters and things like that. And uh, discovered that that was very hard for computers. And I think in the last like five or 10 years, there's been a tremendous amount of advancement in those tasks that are like sort of easy for people, but hard for computers. Not necessarily, I don't think, because the techniques have gotten much more sophisticated, but because the amount of data available 
to the AI algorithms has gotten so much more extensive. Would you, you think that's a reasonable? I think that's exactly right. Yeah. From the experience that we have in, in AI systems uh, at Helpfully, most of the work that we have done has been in that easier realm. So taking things that doctors can do very well, experts, uh, or that general regular people can do well, speak English, talk about the weather, right? Those kinds of things. And then try to build that kind of knowledge or that kind of knowledge production into systems. Right. The basic techniques are um, 30 years old at this point, I think, more probably. Statistical machine learning is, is definitely old. I think the new realm is, is, as you describe it, it is the same techniques, but just done in a slightly more involved way with you know more computation to throw at it. But then, as you said, with a ton more data behind it, which is basically tens of thousands or millions of human being examples, right? Human capable examples that then allow people who are designing systems to go off and actually try to model what human beings do so well, so easily, as you said, they're so facile at those kinds of things. So how do you see this changing the way that designers and developers work? And, and I'll, I, I, have a, I have a theory or at least a framework for this, but I want to hear what you have to say about it first. Um, I think from my perspective, there are some you know, scary stories. I think one of the things we see a lot and that we hear in the news that clients read, that everybody reads, your mom calls you and says, Zach, I read an article and I'm worried about your job. <laughs> um, I think a lot of, a lot of moms are, are getting worried. And I think the, the kind of mass media, te- tech media stories are about technology systems, these AI systems that are going to replace people or replace your whole job, take it away from people. And that does not seem likely or certainly does not seem eminent uh, in very many kinds of roles in the tech space. Let's keep our eyes on truck drivers. I'm certainly worried about the truck driving industry, but I'm a lot less worried about technical, creative development jobs falling to these kind of statistical techniques and these kind of statistical AI systems. So here's how I here's how I think about it. I've been hearing so I have been a professional developer for about 20 years or so and I have been hearing for my entire development career that inevitably programs will write programs uh in a way that that goes beyond what what we do now. And one of the ways that I think about this is to think about what's changed in the time that I've been doing this and in the way that that programming as a job uh has changed. And I think about the, my first sort of large professional project, which was, you know, almost 20 years ago. And if I were to describe that project, I would say that like a team of five people worked for 90 days, more or less, on a project that uh, using current development, web development tools, an individual developer could probably do in about two or three weeks, an expert. But the difference, the change there is not anything that I would characterize as artificial intelligence, but what I would characterize as the like continual aggregation of beneficial tools, that there's an ecosystem to do a lot of things that that didn't exist 20 years ago. There are frameworks that didn't exist 20 years ago. And so we can start from much higher ground and use much more powerful tools. And to some extent, they're all programs, like we're, we're writing programs at a slightly higher level, but it's not the kind of like generated code or, or generated structures that that I think have been sort of continuously predicted. Like, I feel like that commensurate with the tools getting better, like the expectations have gotten higher in a way that means that the projects have not gotten less complicated. Uh, one thing I like to think about in this structure is that is the idea that an individual frame render for Pixar takes like orders of magnitude longer now 
than it did on the original Toy Story movie, even though the computers are orders of magnitude more powerful, but because their expectations for what makes a good rendered frame have gotten so, so much more powerful. Let's come back to human expectations, which are which are always rising and always changing and certainly something that developers and designers, coders, creators need to think about. When I think about the argument that you're making, you're saying, you know, I've gotten so, so far, I've seen so much because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. You're saying, right, the whole endeavor of what is creating computer programs, that is, I think, certainly true. We are deploying tons of frameworks and libraries that were never available to us, where in some senses, right, technical people don't need to reinvent the wheel. You don't need to do something that has been done dozens or now hundreds of times across all these different code libraries. The the AI, you know, sort of proponents are kind of coming at it from the other perspective, right? They're coming at it from the throw every piece of written code at some big, you know, neural network and then allow these algorithms, right, to, to pick and choose, to understand that in the alien way that they do, and then actually generate either specific programs or, or components of, of other programs. That work has not progressed very much. Yeah, except possibly in the limited realm of like optimization for server structures or things like that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not familiar with like cutting edge literature there. I think also you're starting to see some advances in um, UI components. And I've seen some kind of like layout engines or constraint-based tools that kind of use neural networks to learn like, oh, this is what UI code looks like. Um, I've seen a couple of, of interesting things there. Anything that sort of fundamentally changed the role of the UI developer? Or are they still mostly toys? Like one of the things that I'm assuming right now is that you know, when I say that the job hasn't really changed in 20 years, I'm assuming that, that the development has been linear, which is a big assumption. But I'm sorry, have you, do you see that the, these UI tools is fundamentally changing the job or are they just assistants? No, they're not even yet to the point where they're actually assistants. They're like proof of concept that there's something here. They are not really in use, I don't believe, by any actual working teams. These are things that a single grad student researcher has gone off to make or build as a proof of concept that sensical looking code could come at the other end of such a pipeline. Like I could imagine an AI assistant that essentially did a perpetual round of A-B testing and sort of used the learnings from that to automatically... Exactly, to generate the candidates for the next round of testing. Right. There's a lot that has to be done, I think, before that's feasible. Yeah. Ask yourself how many very bad cul-de-sacs on the road to a good uh, a good user experience there are that, of course, you as a human being know not to chase down where an AI system wouldn't know anything about that. So would that really actually even speed you up? Saying it was very doable, would that actually improve your improve your chances? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, what, what we've seen so far from the deep learning algorithms is a combination of like tremendous power, but also a tremendous ability to sort of make sticky, but not just, not just get stuck in like a local maximum, which is certainly a problem, but also the ability to sort of make concrete the implicit biases of the people who develop the algorithm. You know, you, you have uh, books like uh, Weapons of Math Destruction that just talk about this. Karina Zona, who was on this podcast a while ago, talks a bunch about algorithmic failures, uh, you know, where, where the, the reach of the algorithms exceeds their grasp and they make errors in how they interact with people. And they're not just errors. Those are like fundamentally 
the, the kinds of AIs that, that we've been succeeding with, right, in building, at the very best, they are weird mirrors, but they are just the mirrors of all the human decision making that has come before, or the the mirror of the design and development team that has created them. So in some cases, that feels very neutral and easy and safe. And in many cases, as you're implying, those are not just failures. Those are deeply troubling, right, societal things that could, right, potentially be perpetuated into into these AI systems and AI artifacts. And I've seen a lot of, yeah, really bad examples where if you imagine building, you know, AI systems only with people who come from certain socioeconomic areas or who are certain, uh, certain, you know, with, with a certain kind of perspective about the world, you're going to wind up making AI systems that r- reinforce sexist, racist, ageist kinds of, of outcomes or, 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 or thought patterns. And that is not necessarily explicit, right? I'm not saying those people are explicitly biased, but they work in teams that look all, you know, where all the teammates look the same, you're going to wind up with systems that, that have a lot of inherent bias. And that's been borne out in law enforcement. That's been borne out even in things that seem neutral, like web search. Yeah. We'll link, we'll put in the show notes, a link to a talk by Karina Zono where she goes into this in some detail, but yeah, you, you, you know, the, 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 the trickiest thing in the world is to, is, is to work against the, this seems right, but I can't prove it bias. Uh, where you let things go because they kind of feel okay. As data pours in, sort of reinforcing that track, it just gets worse and worse and worse. Where do you see this the AI tools coming in for technical designers, for graphic for developers, for things like that? I think about these things as really smarter and smarter assistances or tools. So in the same way that we pick up, you know, the right tool for the job. I think some of these tools and IDEs are going to actually, right, start to build in best practice, start to build in some context understanding that allows an AI system to, for example, do things like content aware fills for a graphic designer or do things like, you know, catch missing variable names for a developer where, you know, hey, this is an unused variable and that if you understood enough about enclosures and contexts, right, and scoping, well, you could actually start to pull some of those even before things get compiled, right? You could do that at design time um, and not just watch programs fail or, or get inefficient. I think there, you know, there there are some of those things that does not take away from a designer or developer. That just, I think, changes the um, sometimes the altitude right on which those those players are going to uh, participate. At the beginning, that that just feels like better and better tools. Yeah, and and the the argument that I like is that. Even AI proponents know that that's a very nonlinear thing. So the difference between uh, an improvement to a tool or something that improves your efficiency as a as a developer, that's very different from AI systems that replace right any human developers at at, at any price point. Right, because right now as a developer, it's pretty easy to get my hands on tools that will catch certain kinds of bad practices. But they're doing that through like a pattern math- matching algorithm that I basically understand. Like I can explain what it's doing. I I can look at code and understand the code that that is what it's doing. But as those tools become more and more complex, it becomes harder and harder for, you know, I I take more and more on faith as the, as the user of the tool 
in a way that, that matches the way that other technologies have, have worked. You know, initially, the, the first people who owned cars knew how every piece of the engine worked for the most part. And over time, you know, those got more and more complicated. And now I don't understand anything about how my car works. How do you see that as allowing people who are not currently developers or designers to be able to do that work? Do you think it has, it has more of a, of improving expert performance or bringing beginner, you know, novice performance up to what we would consider now expert level? I see the bigger benefit being a broadening of, of the, of the user population, right? Of that, of that designer, right? Set or of the developer set. When you look at tools like the grid, right? Which is an AI based system that helps you build websites, uh, using some kind of reasonably simple, but, but sort of statistically significant, interesting, uh, kind of AI system that's behind the grid. That is really about democratizing good design, for people who could not make a nice looking website, you know, come out of their fingertips, either with raw HTML or with the, even a kind of kit of parts builder, this allows you to, to do that kind of A-B testing kind of on the fly, take templates that have worked in other domains and apply them into, into your space and see what happens. I think that it really is about democratization and it has, in that case, almost no benefit to an expert, nor would it ever really replace, right, a a specialist kind of, of web design team. So when I think about, you know, where these things are today, they're mostly in the realm of toys, but when, when they become tools, they'll become tools for democratization, not necessarily tools to replace, right? Human researchers think about, right? Research librarians, are there more of them now with Google or fewer, right? It's actually just democratized the way for regular people to get regular recipe advice uh, that they get from Google than it is to replace reference librarians at university you know, libraries. I guess it's, in the case of the design tool, it's democratizing our current understanding of what good design is. <laughs> Yeah, and certainly, and certainly, right, subject to that that idea about, that you already mentioned about local maxima, right? It's going to find you the very best version of the 2014 web. <laughs> Is that the very best thing that could exist in the world? Well, I certainly wouldn't say that, but I would say that you could, you know, when I look at there's someone just a really nice thing. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes. It's like every website in 2016. There are right, sort of these, at least in the design world. Things do, I think, fall into kind of these trend-based uh, or local maxima. And, you know, could that be captured and encapsulated in an AI system? Yeah, maybe. But, uh, but that doesn't, I think, worry me from, a, from an expert design perspective or from people who are on the cutting edge or on the vanguard. Those, th- those kinds of teams and that kind of work is still as, just as valuable or even more valuable than, it, than it's ever been. Is there a kind of knowledge work that you feel is particularly susceptible to being replaced or significantly augmented by AI? I, I was racking my brain before we talked today. I cannot think of very many places where I'm seeing, uh, at least in the sort of developer uh, community, as a as a really you know short term danger in the kind of two to five year or even ten year time horizon. However, I think that there are jobs that fall into things like analyst kinds of roles or information processing kinds of roles that certainly many hundreds of thousands of human beings do today that I think as optimization starts to roll out, uh, those systems may fall to a kind of expert level review and then sort of like turning that kind of work into an algorithm where even if you don't hit 100% performance, you could hit 
up into the 90s and just have a smaller, much smaller team of, of humans to oversee exception cases and oversee kind of the quality of the work. I, I mean, I, I think that is that that is definitely plausible to happen. There's a really nice story. It's um, posted by a Redditor. And he's actually asking the ethical question. So he's been working as one of these information analysts for the last couple of years. And he writes this, this kind of post to the Reddit community and says like, hey, I've accidentally automated my entire job. Should I tell my company? Should I tell my boss about this? And the lesson is, first off, don't get your ethical advice from Reddit. Always a good, yeah. Good rule of thumb. <laughs> um, but I do think that there's actually really interesting power in the idea where smart and industrious kinds of, uh, of individuals, right, team members, not necessarily experts or consultants from the outside, are going to actually find ways to dramatically uh, accelerate or dramatically optimize uh, their work. And I think that that is a trend that we're going to start to see more of where people either on purpose or by accident begin to find tools or glue tools and systems together to kind of take care of 60, 70, 80, and in this guy's case, 90 or 95% of his daily work. And he was doing, you know, two and a half, three hours of work per week, uh, but getting paid right for 40 hours a week. And I don't want to go into the details because he wound up basically inserting errors into the spreadsheets that he was generating so that other downstream teams would have to go back and fix them. For me personally, I think that part is is unethical, right? I think that creating work for other human beings is probably not ethical. But I'm also, I think more than this particular gentleman, I'm less scared about right bringing those kinds of, of efficiencies to the management team, right, to your boss, and then getting assigned a new problem to solve, uh, as opposed to, to being really worried about his particular job, his particular job security. Yeah, which is, which is easy to say from the distance of it being somebody else's job. Totally. It's not my seat that's on fire. It's someone else's seat. Down, far down the hall for me. When I come up with robot podcast hosts, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. You will definitely be in trouble. I keep hearing like dark glances being cast at like radiology. I have a coworker who is doing on the side a project to help evaluate MRI images, brain images for diagnostic purposes. Like that, that kind of thing that is expert pattern matching very explicitly, I see as being kind of threatened. Oh, I think those people are, are actually threatened. And those are, of course, very highly paid roles, right? Those are it would make sense, right, from a kind of dollars and cents perspective to look for places where, yeah, human beings are really playing the role of its expert level performance, but it is really just a task that, that might not actually be, right, uh, what humans are, are, are best at or what humans, you know, could be best at. Right. It's the kind of thing that's been hard. It's highly trained because it's hard for humans. But that puts the ethical question in a different light, not just the light of this one person, but what what kind of structure do we as a society, you know, want to have around. It's, it's hard to talk about AI abstractly without immediately getting, without eventually getting into the like very large questions about the nature of humanity and society and things like that, I suppose. Um, there's a really good McKinsey article about kind of like what AI can and can't do and how that's going to apply into, into business cases. What was cool about it from, from my perspective is they didn't just look at technical jobs. They looked across, right, the broad swaths of the economy since McKinsey gives kind of advice all, all, all across. At McKinsey, they divided up all of the jobs across things that seem, you know, rote versus uh, unique and also f- physical versus kind of mental or, or information processing. And they wound up right, coding basically 50 or 60 jobs and certainly things that are 
very analytical, but not necessarily highly lateral thinking or creatively minded are, are things that were that they put higher at risk. I have this I mean, this story that I heard relatively recently has been bouncing around in my head about, I'm going to put in the show notes where this is from, but they did a, they were, they were doing an AI game tournament for a tic-tac-toe on an infinite board where the goal was to get uh, a five, five in a row. Uh, so the, the AI, it was a genetic algorithm. The AIs, the, the successful AIs were sort of, you know, algorithmically developed. And one of the winning AI teams, the winning structure was to the AI in question would place a piece on the infinite board, like a million or so. Sure. Uh, spaces away. A hundred thousand rows away. Right. right. In an attempt to try to cause its opponent to model that internally and crash. <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, you're just p- picking like a um, s- SQL injection error, basically, as your approach to solving the problem. Yes. So, like, to me, that is like emblematic of a lot of current AI research. Like, it can solve the problem very, very effectively, but you have to be really, really careful how you define what the problem is, or else you get solutions along an axis that you didn't even know existed in- until it starts optimizing along it. To me, I think that's emblematic of kind of this philosophical difference between when we talk about artificial intelligence and it worries us, it worries us because we're worried about true intelligence. And I think the systems that we have wind up, you know, wound up with in the world, they work in ways that are not intelligent in the same way that human beings are. They use basically a collection of parlor tricks uh, across time and space. And I don't mean that in a demeaning no, way. So no, I'm not no, trying no. to say I, that, I, yeah. that 50 years of, of AI research is, is, is this collection of parlor tricks, but it's certainly not the same kind of thing that, 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 that human mental systems do on the day-to-day basis when they're trying to win a game or accomplish a task. Right. I've known AI researchers who would absolutely describe AI as a bunch of parlor tricks. Well, when you look at chatbots, right, like go go look at the, um, there's actually a prize they actually try to run every year, the Turing test. I don't know yes, if you're know. familiar with Very. this. Yeah, they, it's called the Loebner Prize. Yep. I think that's right. Yes, uh, and they give out the Loebner Prize every year. Just for for, for listeners, there, um, the Loebner Prize is an AI contest where chatbots try to act like human beings for five uh, totally unrestricted minutes with human interlocutors. So they just put you in a room with a chat terminal. You just go around chatting with various systems. Some of those systems might be human beings. Some are computer uh, chatbot. Uh, algorithms. And the humans then at the end, these judges go and say, which one of those was a computer? Which one was a, was a chatbot? And they give out the Loebner Prize every year. And I'm pretty sure this is still right. Last year, two years ago, I believe, they did trick one human judge into putting one AI system above one human interlocutor uh, across like 25 judges. Um, but that was a, that was a big deal uh, at the time. And, and what I would say about that is when you actually go and look at what those transcripts look like, you can just tell this is a collection of parlor tricks uh, in, in a lot of cases. Right. But a collection of parlor, like even dating all the way back to like the original Eliza program, like Eliza is the, you know, one of the original. Oh, that's great. One of the, yeah, original, great one of the original AI programs. And basically all it did was, was, was reply back. Like you would say, I'm really upset today. And it would have a bunch of essentially regular expressions that would make it say, what is up making you upset today? And it would occasionally jump in with a, like non sequitur question along the lines of how was your day and tell me about your parents. Yeah, something like right. that. It was meant to simulate a, spe- it was meant to simulate a specific 
style of talk therapy. That's right. And, and the parlor trick, yeah, the parlor trick in that case is not just those regular expressions, right? The kind of simple slot-based stuff that was happening in AI in the 60s, but also the entire framing of that experience was right intending to get you, the human, to act in certain ways uh, in, in, in order to sort of vastly cut down, right, on the possible, yeah, response. Right. But there's also been some research, I, I believe, that suggests that it's actually useful, in some cases, to interact with an ELISA system, even if you kind of know it's an ELISA system, you know, that people have gotten therapeutic effect, therapeutic effect yeah, out of it, which, which is, I don't know, somewhere between amazing and disturbing. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like human beings, they're the most interesting kinds of creatures, right? Because they are both totally driven by patterns. At least I personally believe, right? They are not driven by magic or by spirit. They're actually totally just very interesting kinds of, of creatures, but they are built of built of meat. They are built of atoms. And at the same time, they're very hard to predict. Right. The, the, place, where you, the place where you really see a chatbot as a collection of power tricks is where you try to have two chatbots talk to each other. <laughs> it often, yeah, devolves into. Right. Without a human being to sort of direct that in a direction, they just sort of circle around the same like pattern. Yeah. I'm of the opinion that you know, we're going to get closer to the kind of slot-based or regular expression-based systems that work in your home like these, you know, Alexas and Cortanas, yeah, and, and, and the Google Home devices. I think those things are going to be useful. You, you mentioned, you know, the, the point you were just making, Noel, is that, well, there's utility even if these are just parlor tricks. And I think that's going to be true and, and going to if not accelerate in, in depth, certainly accelerate in breadth, right? So more of your life will be assisted by these technology systems. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to get a whole lot better at uh, understanding human expressions. And there's a way in which that's even scarier than the AI will get super smart and self-aware. A collection of really dumb but powerful parlor tricks actually, to my mind, has potential for a lot of damage on its own. <laughs> Yeah, say more about that. You think you just from a who owns it and who controls it question? Yeah, well, I guess I think like I think about Alexa or, or you know those kind of home-based tools. Again, they're they're basically doing sophisticated pattern matching, but you could imagine an Alexa home system that could be easily fooled is not quite the right word, but could easily misunderstand the external state so as to, you know, do not helpful or actively harmful things without even really understanding what was going on or without even really being hacked. Just through you know mispattern matching, misunderstanding the kind of algorithmic blind spots that we see in image recognition, I don't know. It seems to me like there's a potential for a fair amount of. I don't own an, uh, an Alexa device, so this might be related. I don't either. I mean, except for the fact that I have an iPhone, I guess, so I have a Siri device, but I don't ever really use it very much. I don't find them super useful yet. But I don't know. I just I feel like the 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 power, along with the power, the potential for for mischief, even. Like relatively well-intentioned mischief? Unintentional misuse, yeah. Or unintentional mischief, yeah, absolutely. Um, I do want to call your attention actually to one kind of conversational system that is actually making some progress. Pretty interesting. It's called the SQUAD. It's a Stanford question-answering data set. So that's an acronym, S-Q-U-A-D. Um, the SQUAD is a open-ended kind of AI challenge, and they've been working on answering questions based on Wikipedia pages, I think. So what they do is they just go off and say, hey, here's crowd workers, human beings working on Wikipedia pages to answer a series of kind of a canonical set of, of questions. So it's a reading interpretation 
um, yeah, what they, I guess, what, what did they, what do they call that when you were a little kid reading comprehension? So, so the squad is this reading comprehension test and they've been right setting AI systems loose with Wikipedia as their input to answer the same kinds of questions. And those have actually, I think just this year, it's been running three or four years, just this year, uh, they've gotten a system that basically equals uh, human level performance on basically these reading comprehension kinds of questions. That, that's a huge thing. It doesn't work in any way like a human being would, but it certainly helps answer questions. And what, what's, what's interesting there is the ability, right, for systems to read human written, heterogeneous, totally, you know, streaming data set of, of news, right, going by, and then being able to try to turn that into something which is, oh, here is what those news stories are about, right, without using kind of those simple tools like TFIDF or something like that. Right. And you could imagine both power and mischief in that kind of algorithm. Oh, absolutely. I think um, the worrisome parts of AI are very real. I mean, I'm I'm most concerned about, you know, some of these ethical implications, not just the teams, right, that are building the the, the tools that, that we mentioned. But of course, when you look at the kinds of attack vectors that become possible when you're willing to throw large computation, you know, machine learning and, and statistics uh, into these systems. I think that's a really dangerous place to be. I, I always have been kind of interested in in the way that when when an AI solves a problem in a way that is fundamentally different from how a human would solve it. I read somewhere that the Google Translate neural networks had sort of inferred intermediate language. Uh. Yes, they have built their own, their meta, a meta language, right? A language about languages. Do you know more about that? Because that sounds really neat to me. Yeah. Well, I only know two, two sort of big, bigger, bigger facts about it. The way that the Google Translate system works is similar to, to the way that all of these kind of deep learning systems works in that, you know, we're going to throw every possible corpus from every possible language at these systems and it's going to write infer all the rules of grammar, all the rules of, uh, of syntax and, and, and semantics. The interesting thing that, that happened on the Google team side is one in a really good example of the inability to inspect. So the idea that these neural networks were creating representations that were not in any of uh, in, they were not in any human language is real, but even the Google team can't explain what's really happening there. Just like they can't explain anything that's, that that that's kind of ground truth about these tuned uh, neural networks. They've just got like here are the tunings and it just works. They they know there's something happening there in terms of intermediate representations, but there's no reason to call that a language. You might as well just call that a huge long vector of neural network weights. That's what I gathered from the article I read. All human languages are just a huge vector of, yeah, neural network <laughs> weights. It's like, yeah, I guess that's true. I so want them to have implicitly discovered Esperanto that I know it's... That, uh, that would be amazing. That really would be amazing. That's an it? overreach, I guess. Yeah, but I, I mean, like, all of these things come back to... Like, I would say that, like, self-driving cars and translation and, and things like that that were considered significantly out of reach 10 years ago, I think, now seem, like, tantalizingly in reach at least within very, very constrained contexts. And to me, again, like I think that's the power of the amount of data that teams have been able to throw at these kinds of problems. It's kind of interesting. I noticed that you sent me an article about who, an article about who will be responsible when an AI kills someone. And I think it's dated a couple days before. It is literally like the week before AI did kill yeah. someone. 
so yeah, timely. And I, and I think that's an interesting construct too, although it seems from what I've read that there's a possibility of negligence not necessarily on the part of the software. I think that is a perfect storm. Uh, so sorry. So uh, we're talking about the, the we're talking about the Uber self-driving car that that killed a pedestrian on, in a tragic incident a couple of weeks ago as we record this. Yeah, the, a, a woman was killed uh, walking across the street pretty late at night. It was it was definitely after uh, after nightfall. And there's certainly you know like all accidents, right? There'll be many many factors uh, to dig into. One of the things that 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 at least some some of the kind of uh, autonomous vehicle experts were looking at. The team at Uber had had turned off the LiDAR systems uh, that were in the vehicle. So they had turned them off in order to test basically whether right, the system would, would be performant under new conditions, basically with a, with a smaller sensor array or, or with fewer of the sensors that are in the vehicle. And if the, if the Uber team did do that, the autonomous vehicle sort of outsiders or you know, critics were looking at it like, why would you not turn it off for the AI system to use, but still keep it on for emergency kind of evasive, evasive maneuver. Because it's both, right, like the human, right, who was sitting in the driver's seat of the vehicle did not see this uh, happening until it was, at least from, from what she said, far too late to do anything about it at all, right? It was below her, her threshold of, of ability. That reminds me of at least what I've read about like uh, Chernobyl, which was caused by a like extremely ill-advised maintenance task, uh, like where you look at it at the end and you think, why, why was, why did anybody think this was a good idea to start? And then that, that turns out that, and again, like that turns out potentially not to be an AI issue, but it, it does become a question of increasingly a question of as these AI systems take roles in not just design, but as they, you know, already taken roles in, in the legal system and, and in places where they can cause damage. Like how, how do we mitigate that? How do we deal with that? I, I'm expecting you to have all the answers. <laughs> One of the things that 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 I think is um, what is a seemingly good idea that turns out not to be that smart is to actually, you know, in some legislative way, make sure that AI systems can have some human accounting at all at all times. I think that that's quite worrisome. There's a recent Wired article that I really liked, which said there really isn't a good reason to expect AI systems to be, you know, accessible, right? In 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 this way where there's always some simple. Uh, human level accounting of, of every piece. And were we to try to legislate the way in which these programs get built, uh, it, it would cause probably systems to become much more simplistic than would otherwise, right, than, than industry, right, would chase. But I do think that it's, it's important for us to consider not just the technical, right, uh, and commercial capabilities of these systems, but actually have some of these policy arguments out in public and in a way where, legislators actually put constraints on the ways in which these the, these new tools right are going to work in the world and and if we want to change our mind i'd rather do that through policy and legislation than i would just based on the whims right of huge tech companies uh uber google facebook uh and and apple right i i would much prefer us to actually open some of these broader sort of STS, socio-technical systems kinds of conversations now and, and without um, a lot of commercial pressure, because I think that we want to divorce, right, the commercial desires of companies who might, for example, design their algorithms, right, to prioritize their own vehicles over other companies' vehicles. And I'd rather have that conversation 
in a policy and in a legal way uh, with legislators than I would just with Google and, and, and others duking it out right in the real world with, with lives at stake. Yeah, with the hope that we can figure out a way to have legislatures be able to keep up, which seems challenging. I certainly think, and, and yeah, you didn't bring it up, but I, but I do think that we need to upskill uh, and and certainly educate by policy people and, and legislators on that issue. Right. I'm not even thinking necessarily about the, the education level of the policymakers, although that's certainly an issue. I'm just thinking about the speed and pace of legislative work, sort of by design, by necessity. Sure. If you look at human history. Technology has frequently outpaced our ability to to regulate it, right, from a kind of governmental perspective, no, and and for our ability as a as a you know societies and cultures and civilizations, right, to make sure that we that we're ready, we human beings are ready for these new tools and for what these new tools will bring. I think that, that that's the correct role. It is commercial industry's role to push and to push the boundaries and to do things that are strictly speaking, legal until we decide as a society to make them illegal or to regulate them in other ways. But I don't think that that we need to say, oh, we need to put a stop on technical effort or technical work in order to let legislation c- catch up. I just think those are the sort of the two sides, right? That's the push and pull of how technologies right enter into, uh, into our everyday life. One of the things that makes me nervous thinking about the history of technology is that the original Luddites were actually very highly skilled and trained Textile workers, laborers, that's textile right, textile workers. workers, and they that's had right. very, very high social status, and they had a very highly skilled job doing uh, textile work on looms, and it was automated very relatively quickly within the space of a generation, and that was the the technology that they were protesting. It was not marginal laborers protesting the loss of marginal labor. It was highly skilled, socially prominent people protesting the loss of highly skilled labor to technology. And and the analogy to my current position is honestly a little terrifying. <laughs> it's not lost on you? No, it's not lost on me at all. I'm also worried. I mean, I, I think I'm worried about as big technological shifts happen. So that was, you know, sort of the rise of, of mechanization, even, you know, just at the edge of the steam, steam revolution. I, I think that we're, we're in the same place where we are on the cusp of something that, that is going to be transformative. It is going to change a lot of, work. It is going to change a lot of job roles and what what it means to be, right? We are have already talked about what it means to be a programmer, what it means to be a designer, what it means to be a doctor. There are many changes that are coming and they are coming because of these specific te- technologies. And I think that we are going to put many, many hundreds of thousands or millions of people out of work. I have a young kid and I'm hopeful that she does not grow up to be a truck driver. I think that job is is almost certainly going away. And the question is, is it going away over you know, a 30 or 50 year time horizon, or is that going to be something that is actually accelerating? Is the pace of change truly accelerating for the ways in which technologies are getting into, in, into, into life? And if that is true, then that is actually uh, probably societally pretty dangerous. Yeah. And do we have the social will and the political will to deal with that in a way that is going to mitigate some of the worst effects or, or are we just going to let it happen? I wish I knew the answer. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> tune in next week when we have all the answers. Part two of, this, of the podcast. We'll, uh, we'll just answer that one too. Is there, is there another point that you want to make, uh, something else you want to cover right before we come up on time? Yeah. I think one of the things that, that, that I really believe in, and it's actually stolen from the education space, I've been thinking a lot about what are human skills and, and capabilities that are going to be maintained right over over eons right over real time and i think that 
there are sort of a whole set of, of human skills that are not replaceable easily by technology systems. So I'm thinking of the the four C's, kind of this uh, 21st century education partnership created kind of these four C's, critical thinking, uh, communication skills, collaboration skills, and creativity. Those things are, are not things that that technology systems are, are likely, or at least not in the deep learning neural network way. They are not likely to take away our human skills and powerful ways in which we deliver value that are about critical thinking and decision making that are about how do we communicate and collaborate effectively i think those skills are are going to maintain over over time and are actually going to be useful even when ai systems get smart enough to be a full partner in some of those conversations so some of the communication or collaboration you might do is with uh, an AI system, but that doesn't mean that human beings aren't still the ones who are going to actually drive forward uh, those kinds of conversations. So I, you know, I think that's a whole nother AI revolution away before you know technology systems are truly creative or truly good at making decisions in in, in the in the way that or, or or in at the same level that human beings do. So I'm I'm optimistic. I would say. I mean, I know we've only talked about pessimism today. But for me personally, I really believe in, in human skills and, and in trying to find ways to make the, the, the kinds of work that people do more productive, but, but maybe centered on, on some of those things instead of centered on road or analytic work that, that's, that's more easily yeah, taken care of by machines. Well, thanks for being on the show, Zach. Where can people find you online if they want to continue this conversation? Absolutely. I would love to, uh, love to chat. I'm pretty active on Twitter at Thinky, T-H-I-N-K-Y. And uh, my company's called Helpfully. So you can just find us at helpfully.com. Great. Zach, thanks for being on the show. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right. Tech Done Right is a production of TableXI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. I am at Noel Rapp on Twitter and TableXI is at TableXI. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore. You can reach her on Twitter at the Ruby Rap. Tech Done Right can be found at techdoneright.io or downloaded wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. TableXI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at tablexi.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right.